Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clatch. This is Marianne Russo. Um, Chuck Wally is also hosting tonight. And our guest is Chris Vasek. Chris Vasek is the Chief Innovation Officer at HeartSpring. Um, you know, obviously, um, I chose Chris to come on the show because I was very impressed with him and what he's done. After speaking with him this week, I am in awe of what he has accomplished and what he is doing. Um, I want to just read a little bit about the mission from HeartSpring. The mission is in partnership with parents, professionals, and the community to help children with special needs grow and learn on a path to a more independent life, which is really the ultimate goal. I mean, that, that's all parents, uh, it's what we all hope for. So let me introduce Chris Vasek. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, I'm glad you're here. Hey, Chuck, how are you? I'm doing well, Marianne. How are you doing tonight? I'm good. Uh, Chris, I'd like to start off by you um, telling us a little bit about how you got started in the special needs world. Uh, well, um, it was not by design. <laughs> uh, I started in the special needs world when um, we had, when my wife and I had our first son, and about um, seven weeks into uh, into a, a new baby, we found out that Jack had something called Williams syndrome. Um, and then later on, we discovered that uh, somewhere around age three that he also had autism. And um, so I got into special needs first, of course, as, a, as an unwitting parent who was new to the, the concept of special education, uh, although I did have a background, an academic background in microsociology and behaviorism and things of that nature. Um, and um, at some point, uh, we were trying to educate a child with Williams syndrome, and that wasn't going the way we sort of expected it. When you looked at other Williams syndrome kids, Jack wasn't really developing like the other Williams syndrome kids, and I for a long time thought that something else was going on. Jack would have these long, long moments of staring through me, um, which I, I know that stare, and if you have a child with autism, you've probably encountered that stare at some point. Um, and then uh, at three o'clock, at three when he was three years old, our pediatrician finally agreed and said, "Yeah, you know, it looks like there's some autism here." And uh, so we switched to educating a child with autism, and that was new to me. Um, but I was, you know, I was kind of a techie and got on the internet with what little information there was learned about uh, applied behavior analysis, uh, found a tutor, and tried it. Um, we had a tutor come over for a couple of hours, and Jack was just, had just turned three. Uh, and I really didn't know what to expect. And uh, after two hours, she came back and um, looked at me and said, well, you know, he knows his colors, he knows his shapes, he knows same the same. And my jaw just dropped because... I had no idea he knew all these things. Um, nobody had ever really <clears throat> sort of tested him for that knowledge or worked with him in a way that, you know, would produce this idea that, wow, he knew these things. Um, so he was nonverbal, he wasn't eating, he had major feeding issues. Um, you know, so this was this was complicated. And uh, so I said, well, do you think this is, is, is probably something we should explore? So I hired this tutor for um, 10 hours a week uh, for about six weeks. And I, you know, I've traditionally been an outcomes kind of guy, and I've always said, show me the data. And so uh, after, ten, after six weeks, we actually had some preliminary data, and it was stunning. Um, so I said to her, I said, what are the next steps? And she said, well, I know this, this, this person. Uh, she's a program coordinator. Would you mind talking to her? Maybe she has something to contribute. So after a conversation with the program coordinator um, who worked for a private behavioral services firm out of Kansas City, and at the time we were living in Colorado, um, I decided to set up a home program. I hired several more tutors. I trained them. Um, and then over a period of about three years, um, we gradually increased the amount of hours that Jack was getting. And at one point, he was topping out somewhere around 45, 50 hours a week. Um, and, uh, you know, things were very intense with Jack, but his needs continued. 
and they almost kind of increased. The more we seemed to teach him and the more functionally independent he became, um, in a sense, uh, it enabled him to do things he hadn't done before and to exhibit behaviors that, you know, weren't there before. So we were still really under understaffed, under the gun. Uh, he had lots of other issues. We were constantly taking him from one therapy to the next if he wasn't in class. And uh, we realized we were sort of approaching a, uh, a wall of diminishing returns. And um, there were not enough hours in the day to get him to all the services and to deal with all, the, all of his needs. So I, uh, I did the unthinkable. Um, faced with a choice that I think no parent should ever have to face, I had to choose between... You know, it sounds, uh, I'm not a victimologist or somebody who insists on victim, you know, victim mentalities, but I really had to choose my family between one, one victim or five. We were all going to, you know, we, it, was, it was just getting unmanageable. And right. when Jack's support structure collapsed, uh, that would be the worst thing possible for Jack. So um, I started looking at residential schools all over the country. I sort of realized he needed a place where all of these services could come together and where we could get over that hurdle of, of hitting that base pack of functional independence needs so that we could move forward. I understood it completely as front-loading his independence. Um, and I traveled throughout the country. I must have looked at about 50 or 60 schools. Uh, you know, this was about 14 years ago. And... Um, not a single school would take a chance on Jack. I showed up with data, with records, and either it was we can't do his academics or we can't deal with his medical issues or uh, we can't deal with his behavioral issues. There just wasn't one place where all these things came together. We were very frustrated. And, um, I, was, uh, I, we stumbled on, I stumbled on this place at a conference, and again, we were living in, in, in Colorado at the time, uh, called HeartSpring which happened to be in Wichita, Kansas, and it was sort of an afterthought. And I called my wife and I said, you know, I'm going to go there tomorrow. I'll be back. I don't really expect much, but it's just one more place i got to check out. And from the moment I walked through the door, I knew it was a symbiotic fit. I knew that this was the place. And to be honest with you, <laughs> um, I must have acted, you know, rather pedantically because I refused to go away until they took a chance on him. <laughs> they sort of sat there and said, no, 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 no. But, you know, we were, we were really in crisis. Things were falling apart. And um, we just needed some sort of respite. And even if it was just for two weeks, we just, that would have been, you know, that would have been enough for us to at least recharge our batteries and try to figure out, okay, what are we going to do next? So, you know, and I think that's important because I think parents need to understand that, you know, there's no shame in needing respite. And it's it's good for the parents and also for the family and the child. Right. It's crucial. It's crucial. Um, you know, we parents and for, for many, many, many disability years, possibly for most of them, if not all of them, are the energy machine behind services for their kids. Uh and, you know, recharging your batteries and and, and and having the energy to, p to pull that off and to follow through, um, that, that's that's really, really important. You know, the, the people who are going to take the hit are the kids. So, um, so, yeah, you know, two weeks turned into four weeks, turned into six weeks, turned into eight, turned into three months, um, and Jack began thriving. You know, he was not potty trained when he went there. He was not eating on his own when he went there. Um, you know, he was still being tube-fed at times. Um uh, plus of all his behavior stuff, and um, you know, I mean, literally, it was it was really complicated. And probably within the first year, um, well, the potty training thing was was insane. That actually, um, at HeartSpring, one of the teachers literally moved. <laughs> she left her home life for ten days and moved into a bathroom with Jack. Jack was in there, staffed essentially twenty four seven. Took ten days. <laughs> uh, and he came out potty trained. So you know when how you, how you, old was Jack at this point? Jack was six. Um, okay. He was six, and uh, you know, not to get too graphic or so forth, but um, we were living a life in which um, you know Jack was not potty trained, and because of his autism and interest in textures and painting the right. walls and the carpet, uh, we were up 
you know, around the clock. <laughs> we were running a home service disaster recovery company, really. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of families yeah. are. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, the, yes. when you think about what something simple like toilet training can do in terms of functional independence and how it infects not just simply an individual but the entire family or the entire service support structure, um, you know, it's, it's, it, it seems like not that much, but it's a huge, huge deal. Um, so Jack began thriving at HeartSpring. Um, Jack spent about four years at HeartSpring, um, three of them as a residential student, one as a day student, uh, and then we transitioned him into an autism program at the public middle school. And today he is 17 uh, in the autism program at the public high school. Um, Jack is a pretty intense kid. The kid that wasn't supposed to talk won't shut up. <laughs> the kid that wasn't supposed to know what zip code he's in or never have a sense of self in terms of an awareness of where he is or what he wants. Uh, Google's 150 web pages a night and breaks my crashes my computers every three months because he just breaks browsers. You know, I think he has a career in software testing ahead of him. Um, and um, you know he's he is a, a happy, wonderful, well loved kid. Um, he's still behaviorally intense, um, you know, but, um, I mean, night and day, night and day. And so, and you know, ways, I, I, I almost feel like saying it's a miracle, but it's really not a miracle. It's, it's just not, getting the service that he you know, needs. You know, I'm glad you bring that up because that's one of the things when I talk to, uh, you know, parents at, at HeartSpring and when I talk to our staff at HeartSpring, you know, it's very easy. The public tend, and the media especially tend to sort of look at these, and they love miracle stories, but this is not a miracle. This not at all. is a ton of really hard work yep. that's exceptionally micromanaged and structured, incredibly consistently applied across staff and environments. There, are, there is no room to mess this up anywhere. And we are so tight on these programs, and we are so intense and our behavioral approach and our staffing is so intense that we really don't offer the students an opportunity to fail. We offer them the opportunities to succeed, and we reward that success. Now, we have to say, fail faster, succeed sooner. You know, of course we fail at times. No true test of independence, uh, you know, doesn't include the possibility of failure. It has to. Otherwise, it's not a true test of independence. But when you look at how we structure those outcomes and those opportunities to fail, the opportunities to succeed far outweigh the opportunities to, to fail. And when we do fail, we don't get hung up on it. We just simply move beyond it. And I think that's the only way to tackle that. And so when people talk about miracles and so forth, I tell them, no, 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 no. You got this all wrong. The miracle is that somehow this kid keeps coming back for more. It's not what we do as parents or the staff. It's, it's the kids' disposition. Mm -hmm. The fact that they would sit through that another day of sorting green frogs from red frogs to get it right and want to get it right at some point, you can see it in their eyes when they do. Hallelujah. When that reward comes around, you know, it's it's turbo Disneyland for everybody. Mm -hmm. so, and how rewarding for parents moment. that... This had to be such, you know, a it's, it's a very difficult decision for a parent to, uh, you know, put a child in a residential program. It, you know, but when you go and old. you see this child just, you know, really coming out of their shell and, and you know, the improvement, it's got to be amazing. Before we go any further, I just want to ask that you turn the volume back um, down on your computer because there's a little bit of an echo. Um, and I want you to tell us um, a bit about um, HeartSpring. Um, you know, wh what services you offer, what what um, disorders most of the children have there, um, you know, funding, different programs that you have. And then, you know, we're going to talk a bit about the special education system in, uh, that we have in this country that is obviously broken. Okay. Where would you like me to start? <laughs> well, start by telling us a little bit about um, HeartSpring. Um, you know, okay. the children there, what the typical day is like. Um, HeartSpring is, uh, is a pretty amazing place. Um, HeartSpring used to be called the Institute for Logopedics and was opened in 1934. 
It's actually been around for 77 years in the Wichita community. Um, and in 1998, we moved to a new campus after a prolonged federal camp, uh, excuse me, federal capital campaign. And um, the campus was really custom built to facilitate functional independence from the way that it's laid out and the opportunities, the homes, uh, all of these are clearly geared towards uh, disability structures. Our classrooms, it's all on one level and you'll find no stairs anywhere. Um, so, uh, you know, it's a place that was built for this purpose. Um, HeartSpring uh, sort of has two parts to it. Uh, one is a residential and day school component uh, and we have about 50 students from all over the country in our residential school and about 10 students or so from surrounding school districts in our day school component. And they all go to school together. It's not like they're in separate buildings. During the day, the residential students and the day students all attend the same classes and the same classrooms. Um, uh, and then HeartSpring also has an outpatient, a pediatric outpatient services facility where we see um, kids from the Wichita community for various therapy services. Everything that we offer in the school, we pretty much also offer in pediatric services. So that would be physical therapy, occupational therapy, uh, speech therapy, feeding therapy, audiology services, psych workups, um, you know, I mean, just the gamut of possible things. Uh, and we see about 800 to 1,000 kids out of uh, the Wichita community a year that come wow. in for services. Um, and those are kids that uh, are from birth right through to probably pediatric services. Probably sees kids until they're about, I mean, technically 21, really. Um, but mostly I think the kids are about 15, 16. Uh, many of, almost all of our kids are much younger because of our focus on early intervention. Um, and we have free screening programs, which parents can come in, and if they're worried about their kid being delayed or so forth, we will definitely take a look at them, and we will never turn anybody away. Um, well, Chuck, you're going to like them. You, you, we, we, we scholarship a, yeah, we scholarship a lot of our students uh, from the local Wichita community because many of them can't afford the cost of services. So we have a lot of fundraising events throughout the year that support those kinds of scholarship structures. And districts um, also can have um, a responsibility towards it also, I would assume. Well, in our residential school for the education component, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, in our pediatric outpatient services, it's really more of a medical clinical therapy model. Um, so insurance companies, uh, private pay, and sometimes school districts uh, have a hand in, in, um, in funding those kinds of services. But in our schools, or in our, in our uh, residential and day school, um, Almost all of our kids are placed by school districts, and they come to us from all over the country because they failed in every other uh, education environment. Um, our kids are uh, usually multiply disabled. Uh, a large proportion of them probably have some degree of moderate autism to severe autism. Um, uh, some have medical issues, some behavioral issues. Um, so, but you know, it's a it's it's a it's a pretty big spread. Um, many, almost all of our students are actually staffed one on one, twenty four seven, three sixty five. Wow! Uh, and that's that's and that is not, yeah. It, it, what we do is very very highly specialized, and it's not cheap. Um, huh? We are a private, not for profit organization, um, but our outcomes are dramatic. Most students spend between two and three years there and then are able to return to their home school district and succeed because of the independence that we've provided, the structures that we put in place, and the training that we offer uh, when those students return. And I would so assume there's parent training involved also. I mean, the parents sure. would need to know how to um, reinforce what the, what the child's learned, right? Absolutely. Yeah. No, we put everybody on the same page. Um, and by the time you get to this level of special education and intervention, um, parents are usually a very um, a very involved part of the program. Right. Um, so it's uh, you know, I was you know thinking, what we um, do is, is intense. Um, what I was thinking when we were speaking before common. is that Chuck is is just going to love this because you were telling me. It, I mean, you know, you're you said you were a tech geek, and you know, here is your your brother tech geek here, Chuck. Um, you know. <laughs> You're going to love this, Chuck. So Chris, why don't you tell, uh, you know, talk to Chuck and the audience about, um, you know, some of the things that you have there for these kids. This assistive technology is incredible. 
Well, um, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, well, almost five years ago now, uh, we made a commitment to using technology to force multiply outcomes for our kids. And um, very often when you, you bring up technology in schools, you know, you think iPads in classrooms and so forth. Um, but the level of technology that we were talking about had to do really with the application of technology to force multiply outcomes for everybody in the education environment. And that meant in the administration, for the teachers, for the students, in the homes. Um, we really looked at the entire ecology and said, you know, what kind of technological underpinnings and frameworks and, and opportunities need to be in place to support the outcomes to make everybody more successful? And um, so we employ technology at all different levels. Um, at the student level, uh, we have an extensive AAC and AT library and assistive technology library. We have a director um, of, of school technology. Uh, she's a, a speech path whose passion is, in fact, uh, assistive technology, who works with each kid and determines if there are technologies that can work with this kid. And we have a whole library of them to sort of try out and choose from. Uh, we worked very hard on a couple of years for grants to be able to afford some of these devices. Uh, and now we can match, you know, a lot of different tools. We sort of have quite a bit of AT devices at our at our disposal to see if these work for particular students. Um, beyond that, all of our classrooms now have interactive whiteboards. They have AV projection systems, um, and uh, we uh, we are starting to ramp up on a very particular piece of this technology initiative that we call the the Hartspring Technology Project, uh, which has to do with building the next generation special education classrooms, which you might call the data enabled classroom of the future. Um, we have so what does this uh, classroom look like? Well, currently, <laughs> interesting you ask. <laughs> well, again, uh, it does not actually look like a lab. <laughs> um, <laughs> currently, it looks like most of the other classrooms. Um, inside our classrooms, we use uh, an, eco an ecology developed by TEACH, the TEACH program, in which there are certain work areas that functionally enable certain um, sort of independence, task learning environments and sets. Um, so our classrooms are, uh, they're open, they have sort of different work corners, they have, you know, they have bean bags and couches, but they also have tables and dividers and there's visual picture schedules everywhere and uh, tons of programs that are individualized. Uh, we individualize every student's program to the X to the 100th degree. Um, <laughs> it's it's kind of intense, you know. But that's that is part of you know of what specifically we do. I mean, we should all individualize all students' programs, but uh, at, truly at Hartsburg, no two students' programs are even remotely alike. Mm -hmm. um, although they do share in similar activities, and that's 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 kind of one of the components that we're going to focus on. So in the technology project. Uh, we've done a couple of things. The first thing we needed to develop was a new communication platform. Uh, we needed to get everybody in staff from the admins to the teachers to the paras to the parents to everybody sort of on the same page. And we built a new intranet. And this intranet is a social networking intranet. In fact, it's a combination of Facebook, Twitter, and wiki structures. Oh, very cool. And a, what happens is people follow each other in groups, they're members of groups, they're assigned to groups, and the entire intranet, which is connected to all eight of our database structures, pulls information that is student-specific and student-centric. So uh, everything, all, piece, all data that we generate is either related to a staff member or a student. It belongs to one of those two things. And depending on who you are and what your purpose in the program is, you're entitled to see more or less of that information. We've enabled field-level security, so we're very, very tight on the information that we can pass out. Um, but it creates a, uh, it, it, you know, it, social network mentality and the social network interaction creates a huge amount of time savings and productivity savings with the teachers. 
Um, you know, we don't have to have meetings every other week or try to get 20, you know, 20 people together to talk about a kid because literally when our IEP teams meet, there are 15 to 17 people in the room mm-hmm. because all disciplines are represented. So getting everybody together is a nightmare. But this is a way of managing communication almost instantly of those people who need to know about being informed instantly. Uh, we can develop individual threads, much like on Facebook. Um, and then we linked it to uh, wiki structures, which are sort of collectively editable web pages. And um, what that allows us to do is create a collective record of what's been going on. So when a new member joins the team, they don't have to go find 15 people to talk to to get the lowdown on Joey. They can just go to the wiki structure and read up what happened in the last 24 hours. That's amazing. So, you know, so what we're do- what we're doing and what the point of the technology project is, is to force multiply the outcomes. And one of the biggest ways of doing that is to actually create time. Um, I am of the opinion that actually the greatest obstacle that kids with special needs face and the greatest enemy that teachers have in programming isn't funding and knowledge. It's time. We don't get time back. And for the kids, time is more of the essence than ever. The earlier we get to them, the more we can do for them. And so we're constantly fighting time. So if we can create time or save time, we expect that to give us a huge productivity boost. And this new common core social networking intranet actually does that. And it does it not just for one person. It does it for all 300 of our staff members. So how, and that's how are pretty you, how, amazing. How, can I ask, how is your staff adapting to, that, uh, to the new technology? <laughs> well, good question. Good question. I have a great answer. <laughs> um, we launched the new intranet at the beginning of January. And um, if you know something about systemic change and you've encountered it in social organizations, uh, people don't like change um, at all. No. (laughs) At all. And they fight it and they resist it. So uh, we put this into place and we did two things. Um, The first is that uh, we did a lot of training and we involved people in the construction of it. And that means that we invested them early and we gave everybody a say. And many people actually got to see sort of what their expectations had come to sort of expect. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was a piece of it. So pre-building it um, was, was a big piece of it. The other thing we did is uh, we torpedoed the old intranet. <laughs> we literally just took it offline. We yeah. didn't give people a choice. We forced them to migrate. The good news is here we are five months later, and our adoption rate is 77%. That's outstanding. We out of four people, and uh, the only group that we are having problems with, and this is problematic in our industry because of the exceptionally high turnover and staffing that we have, um, is has to do with the weekends and the night shifts for the kids. Um, there's less information being gathered. There's less information happening. Um, it's... Uh, it's a different part of our entire sort of culture. And um, we're, as, as we develop applications that are more specific to, that part, to those kinds of job flows that you find in that, in that demographic of our staff, uh, we expect um, participation to go up even more. So yeah, well, we're, well, we're kudos. doing really, really well. Yeah, well, kudos too. I mean, you're well ahead of uh, the curve from, you know, a lot of school districts and certainly a lot of, corporations in in this country so very good so that was so you know at the core of this is the social internet but that was not enough the second piece had to do with um, digital signage you know how do we move this information to where it needs to be and where it can be seen so we actually um, developed uh, a way to uh, push information via web pages to monitors, to IP addressable monitors in different locations. Um, and uh, so now we have monitors in the cafeteria that show uh, students' dietary needs. We have monitors in the administration offices which show which staff is assigned to what classroom and what kid today. Uh, all of that being brokered immediately by our you know, human resources time clock database about who's here and who's not and so forth. Um, 
And, uh, you know, in the classrooms, we have information, there's general school information, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, lunch menu issues, uh, you know, warnings for um, fire drills and stuff like that. So all of that we are now, in a sense, broadcasting directly to those environments, but we can custom tailor it to the student, to mm -hmm. the field level of information. Uh, and that's new. So if we have a very urgent action message like, you know, Joey's appointment with the orthodontist got rescheduled to half an hour from now, we can push that out directly. It shows up in the classroom and the para looks up and, well, okay, we're off. Let's go, Joey. So uh, digital signage and what essentially came out of the marketing industry and this notion of electronic billboarding, we are using to actually push information that's student-specific right to the environment in which the student currently is. Um, so, and that's linked to our Internet structure. But that was not enough. We didn't stop there. <laughs> <laughs> so, I told you you would like this, Chuck. <laughs> yeah, very good. Very impressive. So, so what we did, um, uh, the, the, you know, what I consider to be the, what I call the holy grail of special education, is that point in the teaching process that when data becomes actionable, and that has historically been a major problem. Um, when Joey's sorting red frogs from green frogs, uh, a para is sitting there, and that para is multitasking um, so incredibly it's not, I mean, it takes, it, you sort of do a double take when you think about it. That para is running the program with her client. She's watching and managing the behavior of the client. She's watching and managing her own presentation of self. She's watching and managing the environment at large because there's other kids in it who might have an effect on whatever program's going on. And she's actually taking the data. That's at least five or six things that she's doing simultaneously or he's doing simultaneously. Um, that's pretty intense. So we were wondering, well, how do we, how do we create time there how do, at the point of service? So let's take this a step further. At the end of the day, um, the lead pair in the room comes around and uh, looks at all the program data sheets and creates a summary data sheet. That summary data sheet is then passed to the teacher. Teacher looks at it, maybe it spends a couple of days on her desk with the rest of her paperwork as she processes it or he processes it. Then it gets sent down to psychology where psychology takes the data and re-enters it into a Excel spreadsheet. So it can be graphed. So at this point, our data has gone through three points of transcription, of human transcription. For those data freaks out there, um, that is havoc on your reliability and validity. <laughs> and so how do we shore that up? Well, maybe we can keep going a little further. So the data finally makes it to psychology, gets input there, they graph it. It finally ends up on the psychologist's desk. And the psychologist puts some notes at the top of the corner looking at the data. Uh, and then it's supposed to go back to the teacher who then looks at it and acts on the information. So this entire process has taken anywhere between 7 to 21 days. This whole process of collecting all this data that we got to gather, and we gather so much more data that we can actually process. And I've talked to a lot of teachers in other education environments. They do too. <laughs> they gather a lot more data than they yep. can actually process. Um, at the top of that paper, where the psychologist making the note, you know what the note said? The note said, Joey has mastered this program. Three weeks later, it comes back to the teacher and says, Joey's mastered this program. For three weeks, Joey's been sitting there spinning his wheels, probably bored out of his mind, having behaviors left and right. We don't know why. Mm -hmm. He's just having a bad day again and again and again, even though he's clearly bored out of his mind. <laughs> right. Uh, we haven't right. advanced the program. And we've, had this, we've, we've lost three weeks of outcomes time. So how do we gather that data electronically at the point of, at the point of service? So we are building a couple of models. One of our efforts has to do with using iPods to build sort of custom behavior management applications um, that actually directly plot the data and feed it to the psychology so that actually it's instantly actionable. You can get an instant graph of Joey's behavior in the last 24 hours and perhaps make conclusions and it'll inform you, wow, you know what? 
eight hours ago, Joey had a medication change. Aha. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> right? We didn't know And those this. are the things that are just <laughs> yep. so important for, for everyone right. involved to know. Mm-hmm. That's right. And how do you keep everybody on the same page? Well, you have to have a vehicle that can update everybody, hence our intranet. Right. So part of it, part of what we're doing involves, you know, custom iPod applications and custom applications to log the data rather than recording it on a piece of paper and sending it through three points of transcription. It actually gets entered once on a mobile device, immediately sent to a database, becomes part of a permanent student record, and is actionable immediately. Um, um, we have some questions coming up on the tweet chat that I wanted to get to also. Um, because then we want to go into the special education. We have a question um, that um, they want me to ask you, um, as far as parent support groups, how often um, are they held? Uh, parent support groups? Mm-hmm. Well, um, again, uh, in our school, most of our students come from all over the country. Right. And travel is in, is an issue. It's costly, but it's, it's complicated to arrange. Um, because typically during these times, uh, parents are very busy putting their lives back together <laughs> themselves, uh, as well as um, you know, as well as as creating opportunities and 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 structures in their own home environment to support Joey when he comes home again. So they're very busy. However, um, we talk to parents. Parents have an open line uh, to staff uh, at HeartSpring, and. We have um, bi-monthly, so two times a month, we have call-in sessions uh, where the IEP team does quick updates for the parents. Um, you know, we have custom Skype sessions. There really is any time that a parent wants to talk to us about Joey, that is absolutely something that we'll do and we enable. Um, now, parent support groups and so forth. Uh, we do have, uh, we have a branch of our services called CARE which is, uh, stands for Community Autism Resources and Education. And here in the Wichita area, the CARE program probably includes, oh, several hundred, three, four hundred families. Um, and uh, what we do is we have events for them, and uh, uh, the CARE department offers particular services and support to those families. Uh, we will put families in touch with, you, with each other. So we work pretty hard at doing sort of the community work. Um, now, what I'm, what I'm thinking is how, um, if these children are getting, <clears throat> you said essentially one-on-one, um, 24 hours a day, um, how do you transition a child from that type of a very intense environment? Um, and not that they're not going to get one-on-one at home, but you know it, it's it's um, it's going to be different. So how do you transition um, the children back home? And if, then I really want to go into how do you set up an IEP or something that will work for them? Um, okay. Oh, I have a good question. Getting back to the um, the computer, um, how is <laughs> privacy ensured for the student? Well, we deal with two kinds of privacy. Uh, we deal with both HIPAA and FERPA issues. Uh, FERPA are the federal education laws that protect education records, uh, and HIPAA are the medical uh, medical record laws that protect medical records. Uh, all of our all of our systems, our entire network is geared towards managing the confidentiality of those student records. Um, the people who know what's going on with the student are the people on that team, and some people may have more information than others on. Again, it depends on your level of knowledge and on your position on the team. Okay. Um, the psychologist or the medical office may need to know some things. Uh, some parents may need to know some things. Teachers may need to know others. So we manage the kind of confidentiality regarding client records. Uh, uh, we actually micromanage it, um, and we're very, very, very intense about it, and our new network is built to support that kind of confidentiality. Okay, great. Right, plus it, plus it is an intranet as opposed to an internet, so it's all internal. Is that correct? That is correct, and not only that, but it's encrypted and SSL secured uh, so that we actually have point-to-point encryption on interaction with the intranet from anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's pretty much an unbreakable key. Okay, great. So, you know, going back to my question then, how do you transition a child that has had such intense um, residential care um, back home? And, you know, how do we deal with the um, 
you know, the school districts. You know, we spoke for a few minutes briefly before the interview, and you were saying that they should basically, you know, what these kids don't, it's not special ed that they need, it's special services. So, you know, go into how we really continue to to keep them on this road to independence, and then what happens when they hit age, what is it, 21 or 22? Yeah, um, okay. Uh, begin with... Um, the way we transition kids from a place like Heartspring to uh, their lesser restrictive environments, um, it doesn't happen overnight. And uh, when I say that most of them are staffed currently one-on-one, uh, that means that they're currently staffed one-on-one, uh, that they may actually, by the time that they get closer to leaving, be staffed one-on-three, maybe even one-on-four. Um, again, the average length of stay for student at Heartspring is between two and three years. Uh, the point is to develop the level of functional independence so that certain everyday tasks and activities of daily living can become routinized and essentially so independent uh, that they are no problem. That all we need to do is to provide the structural supports in the new environment to support the outcomes. Uh, and that typically does happen. We do special staff training, we do facility training, and for those students who leave and still require that intense kind of staffing, um, and sometimes, you know, it's one thing if a uh, you know an eight-year-old who weighs 75 pounds throws a tantrum. Uh, it's another thing when one of our students who's 19 and weighs 300 pounds and happens to be six foot three throws a tantrum. Right. Um, sometimes there's physical restraint involved. So we will educate and we will train. Um, you know there are uh, non-harmful uh, ways of restraining behavior. Um, so you know again we we. We do everything we can to facilitate the success of that student in their in, in the outcome that I mean in the environment that they're returning to, and we'll work with that local team and the local support services to put those kind of support structures in place to make sure that that happens. So, um, okay, so what was the second part of that question? <laughs> uh, you know, the second part of the question was, um, you know, how do we deal with the school districts? Um, you know, because these children are going from a, a very controlled environment and a very nurturing environment um, to sometimes, you know, like you, like your son to a, a regular public school that may be a special right. class. So, you know, how what what would an IEP look like? I mean, how does a do you work with the schools for the for the child? Well, when yes, uh, every single one of them. Um, we work with districts. We work very closely with the districts in all of the district placement situations. Um, many times our students will come with pre-existing IEP goals and we will sit down with the parents and the IEP team and we'll discuss those. Um, typically when students come to HeartSpring, uh, the first thing that we do is we do a functional behavior assessment and a functional skills assessment. And that gives us a baseline uh, in terms of behavior as well as skill sets. We look at those skill sets and then we do we basically sit down and we create a wish list. We sort of look at the parents and say, you know, I'm sure that you've heard a lot of things about everything that Johnny needs to do. Balance his checkbook, uh, be able to take public transportation. But what's going on in your life and what would you like to see Johnny do with his life? And what is a skill that he needs to be able to have so that that enables your ability to take care of him? and to, you know, to be a part of Johnny's life in the way that you want to be a part of Johnny's life. And so we create this wish list, and we actually create those outcomes right then and there. Uh, that's the place where we go, okay, that's what our outcome is. And then we reverse engineer the outcome. And we painstakingly plot how to get from, from where we are to the outcome, knowing full well what exactly the outcome is supposed to look like. We reverse engineer that process. That is not something that happens in general education. It is something that special educators are particularly good at. (laughs) Chris, when you say Um, you reverse engineer that, can you explain that a little bit? um, Sure. Let us say, um, let's say the goal is potty training. Well, there's a number of ways to train potty training. So we will actually back-chain that event for some kids. We will teach them how to pull their pants up first before we teach them to pull their pants down. We'll start, we'll, we'll cut that process of everything involved in the toileting routine into 25 or 27 or 30 steps 
And then we'll start at the last step and we'll teach that skill first. And then we'll teach the one that came before that. And we will literally work our way through that hierarchy until we get to the beginning. And then the entire sequence can actually unfold and roll right into the outcome. So that's sort of an extreme example of reverse engineering. Um, other might be to say, okay, you know, we want Johnny to ride a bike. Okay. Well, he only rides tricycles now. How do we get him on a bike? Well, obviously there's some vestibular things to overcome. So we might look at adaptive physical education programs which build vestibular strength and create the ability for Johnny to balance on one leg. Um, you know, maybe then balance on the other leg. Maybe then we'll put him on a sawhorse with the seat on it and he can balance, you know, sort of pushing off on both sides. Eventually we'll add wheels to the process. <laughs> so we literally break, you know, those, whatever the outcome is, into its, into its actual minute behavioral parts and components and we'll recreate that order depending on how that student learns. Okay. Does that sort of answer your question? Yes, yes. Very ingenious. Okay. Okay. <laughs> hey, it's what we got to do to make it happen. And you know, you are doing what you have to do to make it happen. Um, but, you know, there's only so many children that, that HeartSpring can take. Um, so, you know, I mean, you really are creating a model of, you know, what these programs should look like. Um, you know, for parents that, you know, for whatever reason can't get into HeartSpring, you know, what should they be looking for? What, you know, what services and, and what, are, what should the schools and the administrators be doing? Uh, wow, that's a really big question. Because, I mean, um, there's a lot of kids. I mean, and there are a lot of kids that are either in going to be living very long periods of time in residential homes or that are, you know, living at home and the families, as you said, are just in complete crisis. So, you know, where, where can families find solutions? Yeah. Uh, and, and the end, I, you know what, I don't know the answer to that. Um, the pro I think the problem is, quite frankly, that we're entering a time in special education when um, some really insane things are about to happen. Um, I don't think we really know what we're in for. I don't think people have really thought this through. Um, Jack is now 17. My son is 17. And when he was diagnosed with autism at age 3, some 14, 15 years ago, um, you know, ABA and early intervention, behavioral intervention structures um, were really quite foreign to people. That was not a common sort of understanding. I mean, today insurance companies have stepped up to fund that kind of early intervention. Um, and kudos to them because it really is treatment. It's not education. Um, but, you know, when, I, when we were going through this, uh, that wasn't available. And what happened after that was kind of an explosion of autism services mm -hmm. being required and autism kids, kids being diagnosed with autism. Uh, the numbers clearly indicate that the incidence of autism, I think, according to the numbers that I've seen, that the incidence of autism is in fact increasing. I know there are people who believe that we're just diagnosing it more and uh, that, you know, there are more doc we're sending more doctors uh, to medical school who are learning about it earlier. Um, and but I'm telling you anecdotally, everywhere I go, I now <clears throat> run into kids with autism. Uh, that used to not be something that I encountered all that much, but it's really it, it's intense. And all these kids are going to need services. And we're already not meeting their collective needs. So what happens tomorrow? I don't know, but I'm working on, and we are convinced that what we do need is a new model, and a model based not just on education services that run between ages 3 or 6 and 21, but a model based on lifespan services. Yes. Uh, a model in which, in which the data that we generate during those early years continues to travel with that student. One of the great problems of our social services delivery system and the disabilities right now is the complete discontinuity between points of service. You go from one point of service to the next, and nobody's got any idea about who you are or what your deal is or what you think. Right. Exactly. That's, that's insane. Yes. I mean, we have better continuity with electronic checking accounts. They follow us wherever we are in the world. Why can't we do this for special needs kids? What's the problem here? And right. reality is that we don't conceptualize it in terms of lifespan, lifespan services. Um, 
the way we set it up in this country is kind of unfortunate because the only real services that are available when they really, really count in those first formative years are really through the education system. And we're not talking about knowledge content that needs to be appropriate. That's part of it. We're not talking about that. We're talking about functional independence skills. We're talking about treatment. And that right. needs to happen early. And right. the earlier, the better. And then we need to not let go. Once we crop that learning window open that pops open with, with autism and other disabilities between ages three and six, once we crop that open, we got to keep it open and we got to keep pushing stuff through it. We can't let it, you know, just fall shot at age 21. This idea that somehow kids come out of the school system and now they have to transition into an adult services facility where education isn't an issue anymore, I, I don't get it. I don't get it at all. Well, I know I'm, we had Amalia Starr on. Lifelong um, learners, but we don't expect that of our kids. That's crazy. All right, we had Amalia Starr on um, a few weeks ago. Do you remember, Chuck? I don't remember the name of the foundation that she started, but it oh. is for adults with autism. Right. It's mm-hmm. the autism, uh, I don't want to misquote it, it's the Independence Foundation or something. But, you know, she's um, she raised her son, Brandon, who's, you know, in his 30s now. And, you know, there really is. It's like it just ends you know, for these kids. And, you know, I, I really think that the way that education is going to have to change is that we're going to have to walk away from the conformity of the way that we believe children need to be taught. There needs mm-hmm. to be differentiated education in the schools. It's going to benefit all children, neurotypical, children with autism, with all disabilities. You know, and they really better jump on this quick because, you know, now the numbers are coming down to like 1 in 35 have traits well, on the spectrum. And, you know, Marianne, it's not even in the schools. It's really out in the business community as well because that tidal wave is going to hit there as well. Yes, it you know, is. I mean, it's hitting there and, now. You know, right, right. It's not well, just uh, – You know, one of the things I don't understand is and, – and forgive me because I, I shake my head at it every day. You know, if you knew <laughs> how successful early autism intervention is, you probably you probably would do it. Uh, Let me give you an example. Since the 1990s, we have known that if you do three years of ADA for a child between ages three and six who has autism, at roughly the cost of what today is probably about $150,000, figure $50,000 a year in services, for three years between ages three and six, the lifetime savings in functional independence support costs for that individual for one individual, are over $3 million. If you could invest $150,000 today and save yourself $3.2 million over the next lifetime, wouldn't you do that? Wouldn't you do that? And what gets me is that I don't understand why big companies and big business hasn't seen this potential. We know what's going to happen with the autism explosion. We know that we have maybe 20% of the housing capacity we're going to need for the 80% of the baby boomers who are going to require assisted living. We're already short on housing. This notion that we can't build lifespan services communities or lifespan services, uh, you know, homes for individuals with disabilities, this is a huge corporate proposition. I don't get it. I don't get it why people aren't jumping on board. I, I, I don't know. It seems like we're in this little we're in this little bubble, you know, that we're all you know, it's it's like it's you know, a secret that we have. I don't understand it. There's a great group in Boulder, Colorado called Imagine Smart Homes and they are building the first technologically enabled homes for individuals with disabilities. They're green homes that cost a fraction, actually cost only about twenty five percent of the amount of op- that it costs to operate their non-green counterpart for the same amount of people. Twenty-six cents on the dollar was the last number I heard. Wow. In terms of utilities and whatever else, not. They could start with less staffing. They have aware homes that do location tracking and are intelligent uh, data management systems. You know, we are getting to this point where we can do this. We are simply choosing not to, and I don't get it because behind it is an opportunity that I think is is huge. And I think you're also missing the boat with a lot of these these kids that, 
you know, they see that they have these deficits and they don't realize the brilliance behind the deficit. And exactly. they're really not tapping into the incredible gifts and the and fostering these kids' interests because these these kids are going to be such such a, a contribution to the future. But they're, they're losing them. The kids are falling through the cracks. Yeah, it, you know that's that's part of it. Certainly, we see a lot of kids with incredible splinter skills, um, and you know we what we do is we look at those and we look at those as strengths, and then we use those strengths to to build and reinforce the weaknesses. Um, right. We actually right. play mm-hmm. the strengths and weaknesses off against each other. That, Actually, we're know, doing a chat on that next week where we're, we're, we're taking these, you know, like you said, the splinter interests, the fostered interests, and you start branching that out into areas where they have significant deficits. And, you know, it, it changes. It just changes everything for these kids. Yeah, I, it, it, it does. It does. Um, Before we, um, because we only have a few minutes left, we do have, um, let's see if I can catch the questions here. We do have some questions that we missed before. Um, One of the questions was, what types of programs are used to collect data on the iPod, iPad? Um, Well, currently we're writing our own. I'm sorry, they're not available. (laughs) Um, And that is because because of a couple of things. We actually did do a review of existing applications out there. Um, and what we need, because of the way that we design programs for our kids and the flexibility that teachers need on the front, on, on the front, what you might call in the trenches, in designing those programs and the immediacy with which they need to be able to change those and the templates that, that they use for their data gathering, uh, current existing applications were not something that met our needs. So we decided to build our own. So um, the ones that we're working with currently are data applications uh, that exist uh, on the general data level. That is, there's similar data that's being gathered for all students. And as we proceed in our technology project, we're going to individualize that and start focusing on uh, data structures that apply to each student because those may be different than those that apply to all students. All students share some kind of data, let's say you know, behavioral data or so forth, but when it comes to programs and specific outcomes that are linked to IEP goals, those are highly individualized and those require individualized data acquisition programs. So now are you using these for um, are you using these for input devices or uh, you know reporting and output devices? Both. Or both. You know, we only have a few minutes left, <clears throat> excuse me, and before we go, um, you know, like you said, th- th- this type of treatment and services is not, is not, does not come cheap. So, you know, this is just outstanding. And, you know, just before we go, I just want to make sure that people know how can they support you? How can they support what you're doing, let your program grow? And, well, um, yeah, we have, we have some wonderful fundraisers and fundraising sites also socially network enabled. Um, we have three major events a year. Uh, we have uh, Pedal Fest, which is a bicycle event that we hold in the Wichita community. That's also a virtual ride. You can ride from your couch. <laughs> a great idea. Um, so Pedal Fest My kind of ride. at the end of August. Uh, then we have our Lights on the Lake event, which is our biggest fundraiser of the year, and that happens over um, over the Christmas holiday. Um, and um, then we have uh, the Autism Care Walk in April, which is a huge walk that we put on in the Wichita community uh, for autism awareness and autism action, um, and that's sponsored by our care program that I mentioned earlier. Um, so uh, on our main site, uh, heartspring.org, uh, there are several places where you can go to uh, either look at all the programs that we have uh, if you want to contribute to our cause, we would certainly love that. We would urge you to get involved, not just in our special events, but in some of the really cool stuff that we're doing internationally. Uh, we do. Um, we are. Heartspring is uh, the first school, the first sister school uh, of two schools in the world who are. Um, they're actually the first programs for autism in their countries, and they are in Beijing, China, and in New Delhi, India. And Hartsfield is interested with these very first programs. We do student and teacher exchange, well, we do teacher exchange programs to teach skills with those uh, those organizations, and there are opportunities to be part of that as well. 
We only have about 20 seconds left. Um, so I just, you know, I, I hope you let me know when these fundraisers are because I actually would love to come and, and see the facility and um, meet you and support. I would uh, love to support. Host you, please. I'd love oh, to I would love that. to. And, um, you know, I just want to thank you for joining us. And I think we're going to have to schedule you to come back because there was just so much more we wanted to discuss. I would love to. Whenever works for you. Okay, we'll we'll set that up. Okay, Chuck, job, thanks Chris. for joining me. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Chris. Thank you very much. Um, you know, as I end the show, we you know, you are your child's best advocate and uh, you know, n- nothing says it more than when you know you, you have to find the right services for your child and you have to make the decisions that are tough. And um, you know, th- we're going to be oh, off the air. Um, okay, well, we'll if you're listening in archive, we have some great um, guests coming up. We have Wednesday night, uh, Michael Barton, the director um, of the Epilepsy Foundation of Florida, will be on. And um, on Sunday, we have Mayor Johnson, who will be joining us about all of the latest products for uh, special education kids. You are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent. Thank you for joining us tonight on The Coffee Clutch.